Welcome to the Leader Manager Coach Podcast, your weekly podcast where we take a deep dive examining knowledge, philosophies, wisdom and insights to help you to lead, manage and coach in football, sports and life. Leader Manager Coach is presented by Rob Riles. Rob is a qualified coach with a League Managers Association qualification and a science and medicine background. He has worked in the football industry in Europe, USA and Africa at international, premiership, league, non-league and grassroots levels with World Cup and European Championship experience. Hello and welcome to another edition of Leader Manager Coach. It's Rob Riles welcoming you to another edition. Now this morning I'm really fortunate to have been able to uh, pin down somebody that I've been following for some time um, and uh, we've managed to uh, get some time with um, this gentleman. Now this gentleman is Dan Abrahams. Morning Dan. Morning, Rob. How are you? I'm very well. Yourself? I'm really good, thank you. Good. Um, we've uh, we've managed to get some time together, so um, I'm going to make the most of it. And uh, for anybody who uh, hasn't been following Dan or doesn't um, quite know who Dan is, Dan is a an esteemed sports psychologist. Um, I won't embarrass him too much. He's written numerous books, um, and the reason that I kind of wanted to speak to Dan on the podcast was um, embarrassingly it was kind of last year that I decided to kind of look a little bit closer into Dan's work it was close season and I thought right how am I going to improve my impact on on players that I'm dealing with this year and I uh, looked at two people and uh, one of them was Dan and I thought you know what oh, do you ever get that feeling when you think I should have done this earlier. It's one of those, I should have done this earlier thing because there's tons and tons and tons of things that you can use straight away um, in, in Dan's book, Soccer Brain. Now, he's also got some other books out which I'm going to give him a chance to, to chat about. Um, but um, first of all, Dan, um, just so we've got a bit of backstory, just tell us a little bit about how you kind of got into your, into your profession. That'd be really interesting. Sure. Well, I um, have a strong sporting background. I was a professional golfer um, after leaving school and played uh, full-time um, alongside a little bit of coaching for six years. I did my PGA qualifications up in Birmingham at the Belfry. And um, as a player, I, I really liked uh, the well, perhaps loved this, the psychological side of the game. In fact, I was actually reading psychology books, sports psychology books, from about the age of 15, 16. That's how sad a teenager I was. And yeah. then I, um, I, I, I continued to, to read, and probably as a competitor, I read too much. I was always analysing too much, and which isn't necessarily a great thing for a competitor. And then when I started to coach, I, I quit playing. I was never going to be quite a good enough player, and so I stopped playing and was coaching. And uh, I fell in love more with the psychological side. I mean, as a golf coach, you're very blessed with spending a lot of time coaching. You're, you're doing 40 odd hours a week, you know, and then you're, yeah. you're coaching a cross-section of society, yeah. the, the businessman, the housewife, the lawyer, the doctor, the the, the young player, the sort of eight-year-old, the sixteen-year-old, the, yeah. the tour player, the scratch golf. So, look, you, you get a real cross-section, and, and you're doing psychology all the time. So, as I was coaching, I went to university and did a degree in psychology and a master's in sports psychology. And I came to a crossroads about fifteen years ago. Do I do I keep going with the, the coaching uh, with? the qualifications on the side or do I actually become a sports psychologist so I, I became a sports psychologist got fully registered um, as a sports psych and haven't really looked back I, I, I always say I, I, I work in all sports um, but I, my two specialists are golf and football um, I, I started working in football about 15 years ago uh, in non-league football I initially worked alongside Wayne Burnett He's now under 23s coach at Spurs, but he was at non-league at Dulwich Hamlet and Fisher. And that was a great grounding yeah. to learn the language of the game and the specific challenges that players face. Um, so after this grounding, um, I was fortunate I got introduced to a few Premier League players at the time and started to work there and had a little bit of success. I mean, it's mainly them who have the success. I, I'm fortunate in as much as they were kind enough to say that I made a little bit of a difference. And... Um, Things just built, really, and uh, along the journey of I've been lead psychologist for England golf. I've been lead psych for England rugby for a brief time. I've been um, I'm now working. I've worked with over half a dozen um, clubs, uh, at Premier yeah. League and Championship yeah. level. I've written four books: Soccer Brain, Soccer Tough, Soccer Tough Two, and Golf Tough. 
and um, I'm now uh, consult with a range of footballers, a range of athletes globally, and I'm work down at uh, Bournemouth uh, alongside Eddie Howe. That's okay, well, so that's it. Brings me to today. Yeah, I think. Brings you to today. So uh, that's how fortunate we are to uh, to have an hour with um, with Dan. So let's get straight into some stuff. So just from what you've said there, this wasn't on my list of questions, but I'm going to ask you this because it's just coming to my mind. Can you sum up what the difference is, if there is one, between working with a an international elite rugby team like England rugby and you know elite football Premier League? Is there a difference? No, I. I well, <laughs> that's a really challenging question uh, to start with. Thanks so much, Rob. Um, <laughs> I would say I'm, I'm hesitating here because it, it, oh, the animals all, all, spo- no, all sports are different. All sports are different. The language is different. The territory, the culture, the environment is different. Um, I would actually say, and I'm, look, I've got no problem saying this, I would say football is ahead of rugby. Um, I think it's more open-minded. I think that's in part because the culture of rugby is entrenched in physicality. And I think that they strive to find physical solutions for what could be mental challenges. And in my opinion, that's done overabundantly. I think it's done too much. I, I, I think that more rugby players should seek out mental skills. They are two different sports. They're different pace. They're different types of games. Okay, they're in team sport. They're invasion games, both of them. So there's similarities in that respect. I would certainly use the same techniques. 10-10, mind, we know yeah. we'll get into these. 10-10 HPM, game face controllers, squashing hands. Match script, etc. All the kind of Dan Abraham's colloquialisms, if you like. Okay, so um, we just had a slight incident where um, somebody was unwell for a moment, so it all adds to the spice of it. But thankfully, they're okay. So, okay, Dan. So we we're just coming, kind of, perhaps you know, towards the end of your sort of discussion about you know the different uh, all your techniques that you'd use and the slight differences you found between the. The sport, really. I was very impressed there, Rob. You were about to spring into action. Yeah, with your that was medical a, a background. real live. We should have uh, just left it live. But anyway, so there we go. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't me having a, a heart attack because of the toughness <laughs> of the first question. So I'm okay, everyone. Don't worry. Um, yeah, so look, there's, there's, there's similarities and there's disparities. Um, I really enjoyed working in, in rugby. It's always great to work in different sports to challenge yourself. There's different language. There's different different challenges um, uh, but I would use the same techniques I think that's what I was saying okay. before the short break there um, with minor adjustments so often you're co-creating solutions with players so the challenge I think for anybody whether you're a sports psychologist or physio or whatever when you work in a strange sport is learning the language of the sport and learning the specific challenges that players face and every sport is different in those two respects you can certainly go in with similar interventions. Yeah. In terms of the landscape, it might sound surprising, but I really would put, no disrespect to the rugby world, um, and this is just my experience, I would put football ahead of rugby in terms of openness to sports psychology. And that's a real, in- that's so interesting to hear from from having worked for you know a long time in the game in in, mm. in in various capacities and with different people because one of the things that is is becoming apparent now is I think with the with the especially the male mental health kind of drive that seems to be in the in the media Dan that um, mm. you know every, I hate to say this every, every man and his dog but it's almost like um, you know it's it's not cool but it, and I, it's certainly this is not a, a, me, me making any comment on it but you know lots of people now are, are much more comfortable saying do you know what yeah I've had this issue I've yep. had this problem whereas you know the Victorian man attitude has been a, a vein through football yeah. as much as probably and, and it's interesting that you say that football is actually quite open compared to rugby and obviously I've got very little experience of rugby but you have so um, no it's interesting um, yeah. but um, yeah and I, and I think to, 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 to come back at you there I, I think that you know the mental health um narrative right now within football is fantastic it's opening a lot of eyes i think certainly opening a lot of ears 
and I think it's a welcome, important addition to the narrative in football. I think that what we need to be better at in psychology, in sports psychology, is helping football coaches and footballing organisations understand the different areas of psychology. The way I describe it, certainly from an individual perspective when working with players, is you've got three narratives, if you like, and above the surface level for me is the performance psychology yeah. piece, which is the tools, the techniques related to helping players perform better. And we've really got to normalise that at football clubs. That shouldn't be under the surface. And the conversation I have with coaches is, let's bring this out in the open. This isn't embarrassing. These are valid tools and techniques, evidence-driven. Things like visualisation, affirmations and that kind of thing. Yeah. Self-talk, my words, game face, match script and stuff like that, but absolutely managing thinking that aren't embarrassing, that can be challenging for anybody to do in a pressure environment where vulnerability is rife, stress is high, people want to high perform. It's natural to... Um, have a drop in high performance mindset to a low performance mindset nobody's born necessarily with mental skill and that's ultimately what it is it's not so much mental toughness it's mental skill so that performance psychology piece i think needs to be brought to the surface and i think everybody needs to be involved in that. i think there's a green light there i don't think that needs to be isolated i think that needs to be integrated into cultures with a fluent and fluid conversation happening between coaches and players helping each other to be the best that they can be. I think slightly below that, uh, at the surface level, is the well-being and welfare piece, which is, if we're using a traffic light system here, is more amber. There's going to be some isolated conversations away from the group, whether that's with a coach or somebody trained in well-being or a sports psychologist or a physio or a medical health professional. Um... Uh, and I think that clubs need to be more proactive in, in developing and establishing well-being strategies through their culture. Tougher grassroots level, where time is short, resources are low. Yeah. But the better we can get at doing it, delivering that, the better footballing landscape will enjoy. And then below the surface level is uh, the mental health piece or the... Um, the uh, the clinical psychological piece that, you know, I would have to pass on clients to people who have the relevant qualifications there. Certainly, I think at the top level, every single uh, sporting organisation should have a mental health strategy running through their processes uh, and procedures. So I, I think that's imperative. So I think we in psychology need to help you guys understand that landscape a bit better. Understand what needs to be integrated and what needs yeah. to be isolated. Yeah, and it's a great picture, really, because if you think about that as an analogy, let's look at take. Let's just park and keep in mind what you've just said about the psychology. Take the, the physical side of it and say, put those three things in, down because you'll have the elite or, or the or the pressure. The, the, the performance physical aspects where that might be the, the, the real SAQ stuff that you do before a game to mm. get you right into that that, mm. that that peak level and then the general well-being which might be your for example let's just pick out a, a routine of squats and lunges that people do as, as a conditioning thing to keep you at a, at a level which is your, your, your well-being level for your yellow traffic light yeah. and then if somebody's something's happening Physically, we haven't got a problem with sending them to see a, an orthopedic consultant because okay. there's something wrong. That's a completely a player would expect that. To, to, yeah. that. If I go into a football club as a player, I'm, I'm going to expect that. But on the psychological side, what you've just described, which is just the, the same parallels, on, but on, a, on dealing with a, the nervous system, it, it, it's almost, mm, are, are we are, are we there yet? But I think we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, we are absolutely getting but, there. And, and, and the FA are doing a great job uh, in, in upskilling and educating coaches and people involved in the industry. I think uh, the Premier League are doing a really good job with that. Uh, I think the landscape is changing. Look at ex, ex-professional footballers who are... Uh, 
um, coming out and being open and, open and honest about their experiences. And these are vital narratives to introduce into the landscape. And I think it's encouraging that whether it's Rio Ferdinand talking about the challenges he's faced um, over the last couple of years of being a widow, uh, there's been more footballers who are talking about dealing with depression, whether that's depression through career transition, whether that's just look, normal everyday biological, having a biological predisposition to depression. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, no matter their profession, no matter their wealth, is inoculated from mental health. Um, biology plays a part, yeah. our environment plays a part, and we all have a responsibility to create organisations in football, in sport, outside of sport, that help people um, manage their maladaptive and dysfunctional thinking, but also to flourish, to flourish, to, 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 to look at strengths, to look at, um, to look at psychology as something that, 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 that can help them in a positive way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, this, that's just a fantastic, uh, a fantastic kind of growth of a, of a, of a conversation there. For, mm. To put it like that, it's re really helpful. Um, just going on to younger players because that's uh, where I, I spend a lot of my time with with, with, with younger players develop in, a, in a developmental um, age group. Yeah. And we often have conversations about, and I'll use in inverted commas, the, the old adage of mental toughness, which we know needs to be defined about what we mean by that to, yeah. to be specific um, and can be abused mental toughness is a term that I think can be it can be abused by because you can just easily point a finger and say you know you, this person lacks mental toughness which yeah. is broad brush and actually doesn't help um, but what I've found and what a lot of other coaches have found and, and see today in the as the as the, the demographics of people's lives get a bit better and the socio-economic people mm -hmm. people who are in academies mm -hmm. um, come in you have got a lot of people and again please excuse me for using these terms but middle class people who, who've got incomes and, and, and you don't get so many kids walking to training anymore with the boots around the neck um, who you know are not sure if they're going to get tea when they get in and don't know if mum's going to be home after school sure. that's more of a minority and one of the things we often talk about as coaches is that um People have it so easy in, in life that the demands of the sport, when it gets dog-eat-dog -dog and it's competitive, mm -hmm. is, a, is an increasing challenge for them. And you often can see a link between somebody who's got, and again, I'll use this, this word quite carefully, but a challenging social right, environment yeah, yep. who flourishes in a competitive environment mm -hmm. naturally um, mm -hmm. is that something you've, you've observed and do you think that there are there's any kind of um, need to help uh, or guide people down down that mm -hmm. track because I, I do think that that that, that lack of um, ability to to deal with challenges yeah. is, is a barrier to, to people with, with ability yeah um, I'll answer that very simply in as much as I think young players need to be taught how to compete. Now, let me define a young player. I don't think a 10-year-old needs to be taught how to compete. Right. I think you can start to slowly filter in various interventions, tools and strategies in a fun way. Again, we'll probably come on to some of the techniques I talk about, like a game face, which you can certainly introduce to a six-year-old or a seven-year-old or eight-year-old, but not with the goal of helping them become mentally tough, in inverted commas. And let me be clear, I would always, I'm not here to tell anybody what terms or terminology to use, but I would always use the term mental skill, mental skill, yeah. which I think is much more robust, much nimbler, uh, much more true, in my opinion, as you alluded to, I think it's very difficult this talking to somebody several months ago and they've done a, a mini analysis of the mental toughness literature and there's sort of 45 different definitions of mental right. toughness. It's quite ambiguous. Yeah. So 
I think mental skill is more appropriate. And I, and I hear this all the time, you know, coaches talk, oh, he's mentally weak, he's mentally weak. Well, he's probably not mentally weak, he's just not mentally skillful enough. And I think that that's, that's positive mental skill. How can we help a player become mentally skillful? You just don't have enough mental skill right now. So just coming back to young players, I do believe that at least from the age of 14, that there needs to be an over-deliberate, intentional process in place at academies, at possibly at grassroots club, clubs, um, to help players learn how to compete. Um, it's performance with well-being. Yeah. It's being competitive with enjoyment. Mm. Um, you can have, you can be greedy, you can have all of the above. My passion is helping players, I have lots of passions within sports psychology, whether that's promoting the idea of being a psychosocial coach, whether it's, I have uh, something called an elite competitor model that I use at Bournemouth in my role as psychologist there with the first team. I use it with Premier League players or use it with 14-year-olds, I wouldn't use it with anybody under that age because I don't think ethically that's right because it's just my opinion. I think younger than that age, it is far more participative yeah. than it is about performance. It progression. I, I say, doing the classic jumping all over the place here, Rob, but let's let's just go for it. Um, I always say it's my Billy Connolly you know, style of uh, delivery here. Yeah, go on. But I think coaches are invested in three Ps. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter who you coach. You are investing in three Ps, and that's participation, progression, and performance. Yeah. You can be Jurgen Klopp, Jose Mourinho, Guardiola. You are still invested in participation. You're probably invested more in or as much in performance. If you're an underage coach, you're probably wholly, solely invested in um, participation. If you're an under-12s coach, Progression is becoming much more part of that. Mm. If you're on under 15s, under 16s, the performance side is coming in. And that's when learning how to be a great competitor is starts to become important, in my opinion, if that is what your organization is all about, mm. which the academy system in this country is. So at that age, we can. it does not matter what a player's home environment is all about. I don't know of any scientific evidence I hear what you're saying from the experiential evidence that you feel that some who have home environments that, are, that can be construed as tough and challenging might bring um, their um, coping mechanisms that they use at, at home out onto the pitch with them I hear that have I seen that maybe occasionally I have does it have to be like that no it doesn't um, can people from uh, very stable homes, can young people from very stable homes um, be mentally skillful? Absolutely, of course they can. So I like to see it as a bit of a blank slate. Um, I like to see it whereby we, as coaches, need to be better at delivering mental skills from at least 14 upwards. Yeah. We've got to help players be passionate about that. We've got to deliver it in a way that demystifies mental skills training, sports psychology. We've got to do it in a way that's tangible, that people can practice it um, on the training pitch. We've got to have activities that bring it alive and, and help players yeah. to practice it. Um, and then we've got to got to top load it in uh, on game day. I say put mindset first. So I think I think all players, in summary, I think all players, at least from the age of 14 upwards, need to start building a mental structure to their game. Yeah, yeah. They need to know what that structure is for them, which will be individual specific. And then they need to go out there and they need to learn how to execute that structure no matter what. Yeah, yeah. They've got to, yeah. as I say, they've got to stay 10-10 with their mindset no matter what. what? Yeah. No matter what's thrown at them, nothing and no one takes them away from them. Yeah, yeah. And that's challenging to do because you still can't get away from vulnerability. And in fact, the paradox here is you've actually got to, in my opinion, you've got to normalize vulnerability. 
you've got to normalize vulnerability in as much as mistakes will happen and that has to be acceptable um that mood and motivation are variables that do go up and down before a game and during yeah. the game movement um isn't consistent uh, on game yeah we're yeah. not designed to be consistent from a movement perspective concentration we are as human beings easily distracted we attenuate to situations i've worked with premier league footballers say premier league striker who will stand on the halfway line with ball down the other end of the pitch say it's a corner to the opposition is that striker and i'm talking about the top level of the game here, is that striker thinking the game or is he just watching the game he or she just watching the game you know is he thinking where's my defender yeah. what if the ball breaks up so what often happens is players attenuate to the situation they become easily distracted so concentration is a variable confidence self-efficacy is a variable you can go up and down during the game control self-control is a variable in a tough tough game but there's a lot of cognitive a lot of thinking load yeah. on a player um self-regulating in that game is challenging yeah so what are the variables mood motivation movement concentration confidence control can you see how players from the age of 14 have to start to learn a structure yeah. yeah and then be able to utilize that structure on game day and i say we are doing players a disservice if we as coaches can't deliver on that okay so keep let's keep that in mind because now we've gone on to actual strategy of, of we, we defined a need mm-hmm. and I've, you know looking through you but i love your your power pose bit about about your body language because you know the anthony robbins stuff about you know and, and you know the research that you've you've quoted in your book about how how people's actual you know proven scientifically that your physiological response to your movement and your posture um jordan peterson stand up and put your shoulders back stuff you know um which you you describe so well in your book in terms of you know getting your players to to use that mechanism if you okay can you give us one if you've got a group of 14 year olds what's your favorite if you wanted to start off with a golden nugget for a, a group of 14 year olds and we've got a blank slate and we just say we, we we're brand new into this we ain't great at it and we need some guidance what would you give us with our 14 year olds who are all keen and hungry to be young pros to, to, as, as a psychological tool or, or a strategy one what's your favorite well can i just say something yeah. before i yeah. say that because i think it's really important because this is about the, the science and the art of this stuff is that just just to clarify because you've mentioned some good names there you've mentioned Anthony Robbins and uh, Jordan Peterson and those are 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 um not directing anything at you here but they're two names i don't mention in the book but yeah. bear with me here Rob um i mean Anthony Robbins taught, obviously he's a kind of a self-help guru who doesn't necessarily have a background in the science in psychological science however what's interesting about his work is that he's talked a lot about our physiology yeah. so that's his word for body language impacts um psychology yeah. and actually where there are some interesting scientific areas is in an area called embodied cognition yeah. okay which is there is more and more evidence coming through um from research that our thoughts are embodied uh so they run through our body and when we act in a certain way we can shift our mindset yeah what i do mention in some of my books uh, is the work of amy cuddy yeah uh, who's a professor at harvard university in some called power poses yeah so she talks about be it to become it rather than fake it to make it be it to yeah. become it and the power pose is standing say a superman pose for a couple of minutes and her empiricism has she declares that it's shown that um when you stand in a power pose for a couple of minutes you feel better and then you portray yourself better there is some debate around it at the moment because her co-author in the last few years has come out and said I don't buy into it anymore. Right. So as always with science yeah, yeah, there's a lot it, of complexity yeah. there unfortunately but that's science and the reality is we work out in a world with little control uh, and so we have to quite often we're informed by science but we shouldn't be dictated to by science. 
So I just wanted to get that yeah, out. Yeah, fine. But I, I'm very much into embodied cognition and an area called inactivism. But look, I think for me, I, I come back to what you're saying there, Rob. I, I think body language is really, really important. There's several things I'd say. You could say simply, uh, you can ask players to keep great, your 14-year-olds to keep great body language. What I would say to coaches is the frequency at which you're doing it. Do you just say it as a one-off before they play or before which they train? To do, yeah. yeah, and then you kind of oh, just keep great body language, and it's just forgotten about in the noise. Or are you insisting on it all the way through? We talk about the importance of non-directive coach asking questions, etc. But I think one area where you can be quite directive, in my opinion. You can be non-directive as well, but where you can be quite directive is on the mindset side of things. Yeah. And I think that, but, but let, let, let's let's zero in on this idea of body language a bit more. And this is where the, the embodied cognition comes in a bit more, is this idea of show me a confident pass. Show me a focused first touch. Yeah. Okay. Show me an aggressive <clears throat> movement. Show me an aggressive run. Show me the dominant body language here. Be dominant in the challenge. So using action-based words, and you know what, Rob, you can use this with a 14-year-old. Hey, I'm using this with first-team players in the Premier League. Show me, pick some action-based words and ask them to show you that. Ask them to embody it. Ask them to be it and to do it yeah. and to act it out. But to act it out whilst doing the activities, the passing activities, the small-sided game, the keep Yes. The pressing activity. Show me an aggressive press. Show me an aggressive press. Can you show me an aggressive press keeping the right distance between you and the player? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's... Developing skill, enveloping that with action-based words that help retain the kind of body language and the kind of the style of action in which you want them to execute yeah. that skill. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Show me a dominant yeah. header. Yeah. Because another way to look at this is we can have a player, you and I could be out on the pitch right now, Rob, and we could have a player working on this individual player with his... Um, with his heading or her heading and we could get someone to feed a ball and we could say, just show me a header show me a head that ball and he or she heads the ball yeah. and then we could say to, to that young player okay now I want you to show me an aggressive header and that player shows you you're an aggressive header suddenly it's a bit more aggressive yeah. it's a bit more assertive but then we could say you know what that looks 5 out of 10 for heading there for an aggressive head yeah. okay I want you to show me Eight out of ten. To really crank it up and turn up the volume of aggression. Show me eight out of ten aggressive heading. So it's a bit more. Yeah. Oh, I still think that was down at six. Can you show me ten? Show me ten. Show me ten out of yeah, ten. Yeah. And then we might bring then that might be isolated. Now we're gonna bring in a player. Which some people in the coaching world would say should never isolate uh, a physical skill. That's up for debate, but let's bring a player in. Now show me 10 out of 10 aggressive header with this player on you. Okay. Now we're going to use different angles. Yeah. Now we might look at keeping the right body shape from this angle with the ball being sent in from the right, you know, the right, the, the right channel or the right wing. Okay. And I want you to do that with aggression at the right body shape. Okay. And I want you to win that header, etc. etc. So we're laying on the skill, yeah, yeah. but yeah. still keeping the action-based word or words we're still enveloping it in mental skill. Yeah. And that comes back to body language. But people just say, I'll oh, keep great body language. That doesn't mean anything. We need to be more specific. We need to be more specific. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely great. That's great advice. That's something we can really take away. And the players will get that because, and they'll be interested. and know they'll be interested because rather than saying, okay, you know, you need to stick your chest out. You need to have your chin in. You need to feel you know maybe a 14 year old boy is not going to get that but a 14 year old boy will get it when he when he, he drives through the ball it feels good and he knows he's connected and he sees it goes where he wants it. and and i get exactly what you're saying and, and i think that's that's great because it's we can do something that's football specific so we can practice the physical skill whilst we're laying down that 
that connection with the brain that makes them feel good about doing it as, as well, yeah. which is which is I think is what you're saying, which is absolutely great. And I think you've got to, what that does is it delivers context because players have to feel, they have to kinesthetically yeah. feel yeah. the actions you want them to feel. And there's so many young players who don't make the breakthrough because they haven't experienced what you want them to feel. And then in coaching, we get too lazy. We just say, oh, well, he hasn't got it. He hasn't got that warrior mindset or that warrior spirit or he hasn't got the skill, or he can't piece it together. Whereas, in actual fact, I think it's uh, a piece of the, the coaching puzzle. The, it's our communication. Yes. It's co-creating the solution. When we do ask the right questions, it's how did that feel? Okay, did that feel aggressive enough? Did that, did that feel what? Give me a scale of one to ten on terms of how aggressive you felt. I'm just honing in on the word aggressive here. It might Clearly, yeah, won't no, we get it. That, aggressive, but, but we get it. It's helping players experience the feeling, and then giving them the platform to execute that feeling, um, the kinesthetic feeling, and the affective feeling, the emotional feeling. Um, yeah, nonstop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, again, because of what your conversation, and I just want to pick up on something because one of my real favourite, favourite things is that, that I passionately believe in mm. is, is 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 practice makes perfect or, or um, yep. precise or focused practice makes perfect and one of the most influential pieces of literature that's ever ever impacted me was George Leonard's mastery book okay. and I absolutely feel and get and, and resonate with that plateau concept that he talks about and one of the things that I think that's strongly related to it is, is the psychological mindset because with a lot of the FA's dictum over the last few years has been let the game be the teacher. Mm -hmm. And that links to isolated practice, which I believe if you've got a, a lack of a skill, mate, let's just pick a real simple one that you're a right-footed player and you struggle it's five times out of ten when the ball comes onto your left foot, you're always trying to get it back on your right because you can deliver with your right. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of philosophy uh, around modern day coaching where it's like play the games, keep the ball rolling, mm -hmm. but actually doing, you know, a thousand left foot strikes a day mm -hmm. is actually mm -hmm. not 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 a recommended thing. I, I totally disagree with that okay. from a personal point of view. I'm a, you know, I'm sure Roger Federer didn't get where he did by just playing games of tennis. Now, you know, I'm not saying I'm right, but mm -hmm. that, that's what I believe. And I think there's a massive psychological component to that for people to be able to just not day after day Dan, not actually see visible improvements um, and, and to deal with that with those plateaus. Um, have you got any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, there seems to be two strands uh, to, to what you're saying there. The first one is skill acquisition, um, um, and the second one is, is training methodology. And you very much started it in terms of training methodology, but just taking that skill acquisition piece, I think it's a really interesting debate, this isolated uh, practice, isolated training. Is it, is it a value? Um, over the past two years, I listened more to the the guys who the guys and the girls who are more invested in the constraints learning uh, literature and what they would say to you would be okay Rob you could take somebody somebody who said weak with their right foot let's just say that and you're saying I don't think there's anything wrong with that person going away and doing a thousand right foot clearances or yeah, strikes whatever, or whatever yeah. and, and, and you know what I, I, I've tried to take myself above the argument and look at both sides because I come from very much that background when I was a golf pro I was hitting a lot of shots and I wouldn't. I don't know if I'm ever going to say that that is not of value. What those guys would say is that the actions that you're learning, that you're practicing, that you're honing with your right foot. So let's say you're clearing the ball. Mm -hmm. So you practice a thousand clearances. 
the action, the motor skill you generate without anybody else around pressing you or there not being a context-specific environment in terms of I've got to clear it in this direction, Mm -hmm. the pressure's on me, is that you might use, there is evidence from research to suggest that your action clearing the ball is different to the action you might use than if somebody's pressing you. When you get under pressure. When you get under pressure, um, where there might be pressure to, you're conflicting maybe, should I put my foot on the ball? Put it back to the goalkeeper, pass decision. it back to goalkeeper. There's a decision involved. That's a very good word. There's a decision to be made. And they, these guys talk about a decision-rich environment to learn skill. How can a motor skill be separated from a decision? And when you do it in an isolated environment, you're separating it from a decision. It's an interesting landscape, and I'm certainly not the I'm a sports psychologist and I'm a skill acquisition coach, but I certainly take a keen interest. I sit somewhere in the middle. I agree with you. I don't think there's, personally, I, I think there needs to be another decade of research to convince me that, that taking a different, executing a different action really makes that much of a difference. If somebody goes out and practices in an isolated way, probably not a thousand times, but does 10 minutes, 20 minutes after training, I don't, I really don't see a problem. I just think ideally you might have somebody pressing them. I just think that, that if you, so you spend yeah. a block of time doing yeah. a specific activity, yeah. we can virtually guarantee that there will be some kind of let's use the general word improvement in that ability to, to execute that task. Yeah, but it, the, the key word here is transference. So they'll improve it, but those in guys that, within, yeah. And I would say then, if if you play a game, yep. and in a game they get five opportunities in yep. that 20-minute game to yep. to yep. do that. Yep. And this is me hedging my bets and saying yeah, yeah. what I believe. I, I, yep. I honestly think that the, the guy who's got the, the 20 minutes a day isolated yep. compared to doing it five times... Yep. However, at some point, absolutely, it cannot be left as a nice idea. It has to be put in, in, into context. So, maybe Dan, the, yeah. you, you know, the balance view with a lot, of, as with a lot of things, is the is the is the best way to, no, to go. I, I, I think. Look, I, and I also think that efficacy, self-efficacy. So, self-efficacy is the psychological term for self-belief, and when a player takes the time, let's say a player takes 20 minutes per day, five times a week, to practice those right-footed clearances, one could argue that that player is building their self-efficacy, their the belief they have that they can clear a ball in yeah, that yeah. situation. So there's that human element there as well. So I hear you, and I, I'm absolutely not arguing against you. I think the landscape is complex, and I think it requires an examination across the board. I think it one can can isolate it. I think it's useful to do that little and often. I think that that can build self-efficacy. I think if you can add complexity in that situation, add a bit of chaos, add somebody pressing, sooner rather than later, that's useful. I think if you as a coach can add a decision in that moment, so not just clear it, but also is the decision to go back to the goalkeeper and you might prep the person pressing, to press in a particular way, that might force a player to make a decision about whether to clear it, or to pass back. Okay. So I think a decision-rich environment can be useful. It's all up for good debate. I think let's go to the second strand, which is the uh, the importance of training, uh, practice making perfect or permanent or precision. I think for me, and we're talking about football here, this is a football podcast, yeah, so to me, what I've experienced over the last 15 years and I've written about in my books is players are poor at what I call intentional training. 
or intentional practice. And at my term for Anders Ericsson's deliberate practice. So Anders Ericsson is arguably one of the world's leading experts on expertise, how to become an expert in a specific yeah. field. He has lots of some controversial uh, elements to his theories. Not least, he was kind of the pioneer of the 10,000 hours that kind of got taken out of context yeah. by Malcolm Gladwell and it kind of built from there. But I mean, I think he came up with this an average of 10,000 yeah. hours. But look, 10,000 yeah. hours, well, whatever. But what he, what he talked about mainly was 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Yeah. Deliberate practice being practicing on purpose with a goal in mind. Uh, it's got to be tough. It's got to involve feedback. Um, and I don't call it deliberate practice. I call it intentional practice. I think footballers have to go in with intention. Now, what do I mean by this? What I mean is I think footballers are very good at practicing with intensity. I think they tend to go in and they'll practice hard. You know, I've got no doubt about that. They need a that. blast. They want addicted to the blast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I've got, by and large, by and large, very few players don't have that. There are some, in inverted commas, yeah. poor trainers. But they'll practice... But they're not very good at practicing with focus. By that, I mean practicing intentionally is in pick an objective. Pick one or two objectives. And strive to get better at that. So I was recently working with a Premier League player who's quite a prominent one. Not to impress you, but to impress upon yeah. you that this is really at the top level as well. I said, well, what are you trying to achieve in training? And he was like, well, it's just getting prepared for Saturday, isn't it? Yeah. Like, okay. And that there's an element of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're working on your competitiveness and we're working on your match day mindset, but we've got to work on your mastery mindset. You know, mastery mindset that's driven by intentional training. So what do you want to practice? What's an area of your game that you want to hone in on and get better? And we started to talk about positioning and when to press a player and this stuff. And I, you know, I'm not a football coach. I'm not teaching. But what, what I can do is empower a player to come up with their yeah. solutions. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, you know, what, as the manager said, what does the coach say? Positioning needs to be better defensively. You know? So, right, fantastic. Can you go into training and work on this? And then when you finish training, can you reflect on it? You've got to be in that moment. And... and the toughest thing, why it's so in, so difficult for players to improve once they get to a certain level, for me, is because of this invisible, silent mediator of intentional training. Do your 16, 17, 18-year-olds, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, the 28-year-olds, do they go in with some objectives in mind, one or two objectives, based on an area that they want to improve, a weakness if we want to use that? And are they in that moment, are they practicing with intention? Are they doing that with intensity? Are they doing it integrated with the feedback from the coach? You know, are they internalizing what they're doing? So are they training and thinking about it as they're yes. doing it? Uh, and then when they're finished, are they self-reflecting? And really, that internalization, are they reflecting in the moment? And that's 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 where there's a really interesting juxtaposition when it comes to comes to training. There's a really interesting debate there because some people talk about train like you want to play, play like you want to, you know. Yeah. And it, and it's like, yes, okay, but there's also a sensibility and a truism about well, can you really do that if you want to improve? Because there's an element of training that does require reflection in the moment that you don't really want too much of that on match day. Mm that links a little bit to the isolated practice argument in in a way because mm -hmm. to, to do to break something down if you're absolutely if you're kind of a, a one out of ten at it yep. you know to to do it in a match tempo mm -hmm. is is if we standing by our argument isn't going to actually impact that that, that skill set because mm -hmm. it'll pass you by almost so they're kind of they're linked a little bit yeah yeah i think again i think i just think it can all work. I, I think for me, going back, we're jumping back, but let's go back no, to okay, the isolation where the isolation can be really useful is awareness. A lot of coaching is about awareness. It's about helping players become aware of what they're doing and, and, and what they're not doing. And I think, Dan, in the, in, in the competitive, absolutely results-driven professional football environment mm. that 
the culture of getting ready for Saturday with the games programme in terms of very, very often, probably two thirds of the weeks, there's a, there's a, a three game week, Saturday, Wednesday or Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. Mm which is often the case yeah. if you're playing 46 league games league two and three you're playing um you know your checker trades and all the rest of it that the actual opportunities to improve a technique or improve are a very left is extreme is left to the to the individual player to try and find windows of opportunity to do that themselves because that you know that as as a group of a squad you know the coaches and the managers will be happy that they've got 13 fit players to to put out on the pitch to be honest with you never mind um you know one who's actually improving his his technique um so i think that's the challenge as well it's the it's the i think challenge is a good word because i i, I yes it's really challenging I, again, I think it's an interesting landscape. Again, I'm, I'm coming back to my work, and I'm, you're looking at me here, and I'm sitting and I'm reflecting, and I'm thinking about the work I'm doing on competitiveness. How do you help players be competitive and develop at the same time? How do you help them progress yeah, yeah. and perform? And you're quite right when when you've got all those games, and I'm thinking about my work at, at this last seven years, whether it's been Derby County, whether it's been Yarn, Fulham, and all the places I've worked historically. Some places I can't mention because it's confidential, but at Bournemouth at the moment and, and it, it is challenging to have conversations about progression with players who are so entrenched in a culture of performance when they're say in their early mid late 20s it is challenging let me put this to you I'm in the process of building a model where I'm defining performance as the execution of actions within a role. Yeah. So every footballer has a role yeah. on the pitch, and every role has. So I'm a I'm a centre back. My role is centre back. It's to defend. It's to keep a clean sheet. Yeah. Um, and within that, I have actions to execute, and I would split those actions into two. I would have skillful actions. Yeah. And I would have tactical actions. This is a work in progress, so bear with me. Yeah, great. It's great. Skillful actions and tactical actions. I think coaches at that level have to be nimble enough to coach tactical actions. Yeah. This is what I want you to do as a centre back on Saturday when we play Liverpool. Yeah. Because this is what. Firmino, yeah. all these players uh, bring to the table. This is how he likes to play, so this is what I want you to do. There's your tactical actions. You will work on that on the training pitch, certainly Thursday, certainly Friday. But I don't think there's anything wrong with helping players have ongoing objectives in training, intentional training, around skillful actions. Yeah, yeah techniques yeah i think i've looked we're sitting in front of a video here let's look at your heading i've monitored this so this is very top down leadership yeah. style this is very directive coaching which tends does tend to happen at first team level but possibly needs to happen a lot of the time um i've looked at this and i've seen that you can win more headers we need to work on this this is a skillful action let's just make sure Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. You just do another ten minutes. I'm going to have a player press you. We're going to work on this yeah. aggressive yeah, yeah, heading. Yeah. Okay. So I'm kind of splitting it again. It just comes back to language and nimbleness and concepts and structure. And 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 I know people might hate structure these days because they they think it's the inverse of creativity. But I, you know, I was talking to well, but but I think but I don't know if it is a pendulum. I I think it. it, it, it I was talking to Todd Bean the other day on my own podcast, and and, and he um, he was talking about creativity coming from structure. Um, Todd Bean is Johan Cruyff's son-in-law and works alongside Johan Cruyff for years, and and. Um, you know, he said creativity comes from structure, and I quite like that. And 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 I think that players need that. So look, I come back to skillful performance in football is action, the execution of actions within roles. Yeah. Have conversations about with players about their roles. 
talk to them yeah, about yeah. the tactical actions, help them train those tactical actions. It's great to hear, Dan. It's great to hear. And co-create yeah. those yeah. skillful actions. And if you don't want to be directed, be non-directed. Ask them the question, what skillful actions yeah. do you think you want to... And put a list in front of them. It's great to hear. Because we're always talking to... Well, me and the coach that I work with, we're all talking about the, the age group we work with. Play your position. Play your position, which is basically what you're, the same thing as you automatically roll. Listen, I'm really... Um, aware of your time because I know you've, you've got to go uh, there's two things I want to try and get in there's, yeah, yeah. there's loads I want to get in but there's, there's two um, talk to me if you can really quickly about uh, I was brought up on a directive coaching methodology because to prove to the coach educators that I could get my certificate mm. they used to say to me and I believe in this don't I need to hear you have got the answers. So there's a scenario, you're coaching in an 11 v 11 game. Sure. You've, you've got an objective, might be defending, might be attacking, might be wide play, could be anything. You see something that isn't to your liking that you need to address. So you stop it. It's a short intervention, 20 seconds, hopefully, maximum impact, minimum intervention. This is when, when that happens, I want you to do this, this and this, and you do that. And goalkeepers, you need to be two yards there. Tweak that, tweak that. Recreate, go. You might have to do repeat that again. Now, there's an awful lot of stuff now about... John, what do you think you should do? Fred, what do you think you should do? Hmm? Just give us your little bit on that. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, this, this really is... Uh, I, I think my favourite term is complex landscape. This really is... And, and I, yeah, no, I, I want to be clear, as a sports psychologist, look, there's some great people out there who know far more about this than I do. I'm just a, a keen student. And in my own role as a sports psychologist, clearly a lot of my work is... Not all of it, but a lot of my work is non-directive. It's the art of asking the question uh, to, to help a, a, a player... Build their their own personal solutions, but co-create as well. But I'll also um, offer suggestions. And I have my own models as well that I'd, I'd offer players. But that's my world, and I think uh, I just think it's a keen mix. I think what we're talking about there is coaching on the run, and I think that the most effective coaches older age groups let's start there are the coaches who offer both yeah. who are very nimble at delivering both who may have a good knowledge of who they've got in front of them I'm talking about older age level I think this is scholars art. okay 18 plus yeah yeah Maybe well scholars 16, 16 plus 16, 16, 16 plus yeah I think there's got to be a time for coaching on the run where you're just uh, providing a solution yeah. on the run at that age yeah. level. Um, I think that there is a time to ask a question of a player uh, and make an offer choice as well. There's great work from a psychologist called Rebecca Luthwaite on the power of offering people choice. Yeah. How that provides autonomy and empowers players. Um, I think that as you go down uh, the age groups, then you might find that you can be a more effective coach when you're setting problems and challenges in an activity yep. that players have to yes. solve. Yeah. And it's that poses the question yeah. rather than your voice, your communication. You pose the question through the, the challenge, act, the, challenge the activity. And they have to come up as individuals and as a group with an answer. I also think that I come back to this awareness piece that the questions, there's a disparity between convergent and divergent questions. So a convergent question is I'm asking this question and I really have an answer, a stock answer in my head of what I want you to, where I want come you to with. go or come up with or get to. 
And then there's the divergent question that's very useful within this problem-solving setting. That's, this is what you did. You passed out to the fullback. What did you see that made you make that decision? So you're helping a player become aware of what they did to make the yes. decision. And then you can take it wherever you want. You might then take it on a, um, a thumbs up, okay, and then have a conversation afterwards about whether, yeah. whether other yeah. options, what else could you have done. You could even get prescriptive and say, well, could you open up a bit more there and see seeing the player yeah. on the left-hand side. I'm not a fan of one method being yeah, yeah. being wholly tied. I'm probably going to lose a lot of <laughs> people. Being wholly tied to one methodology. And there are very good, really good coaches that I can think of right now who are really committed to single methodologies. And you know what? It's not for me to say that's right. Well, they're more experienced than coaching under 10s and 12s and 8s than I ever will be. And they've probably forgotten more about football than I'll ever know. I would, I, it's my personal opinion that as a coach, it's useful to learn non-directive yeah. and directive approaches and become as nimble yeah. as you can possibly yeah. be with probably the aim of having an overarching methodology, yeah. philosophy, but allowing yourself, yeah. giving yourself permission to spill out into other methodologies really? and understanding, yeah. with an understanding that there are different underpinning scientific methodologies that uh, influence what you're doing. You know, it, it's constraints-led is different to being directive. And you might cross over and you might conflate the two at times. And you might get a little bit wrong here and there. But you know what? That's okay. Who are we to yes. dictate what somebody yeah, yeah. does? Yeah. What I would say is it's when you hit the extreme ends... Yeah. What I uh, what I would say is it's when you're solely directive or solely non-directive. In my opinion, that's a bit maladaptive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I think it's uh, that's fantastic. Look, Dan, I'm I'm well aware that we've had you for probably over an hour now, and um, I want to just make sure you get away to your, to your next meeting. Um, this has been absolutely amazing. Um, just so. Um, people know where they can um, they can contact mm -hmm. you if anybody has not come across you before what's uh, what's the you know um, do you want to just talk about perhaps your social yeah. media connections and, and, yeah. and any of the work that you're currently you know your, your books and stuff where they can kind of access those and things like yeah. that so um, my uh, my website is danabrahams.com um, I've got three Twitter accounts uh, the main football one is danabrahams77 uh, no clues to my age there um, uh, at Abraham's Golf, if yeah. you're interested in golf, and at Sports Psych Show, um, which is uh, my podcast on Twitter. Sorry, Rob, I do have a pop no, podcast great. as well. All for it, mate. Yeah, that's, all for it. that's the Sports Psych Show. Yeah, uh, books can Soccer Tough, Soccer Brain, Soccer Tough too, and, and Golf Tough can be found on Amazon yeah. uh, and uh, other internet uh, retailers. Um, so yeah, I think I think face, I've got Facebook as well, LinkedIn and Instagram. Yeah, so, so we can find you on all those platforms. Yeah, certainly. Can. Yeah, brilliant. That's great. Right. Well, just to um, to round off, Dan. Just so um, I always ask people a couple of a couple of quint, uh, questions at the end. So um, you know, feel free to say pass and we'll move on. But um, oh. have you got a favourite film? Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> I've got to put you on the spot. Have you got something that you think you know? Have? Got uh, yeah. You, God got. Uh, yeah. Favourite film, Godfather Part 2. Wow. Okay. With uh, a cheesy soft spot for the <laughs> Chariots of Fire. Yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You like that. <laughs> it's a bit of sports like in that song. Yeah, yeah. Oh, love mate, that full, of, full of sport, but thoroughly cheesy. Love but we it. love it. Yeah, love that. Um, best book you've ever read? Other than Soccer Tough. Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, the second best book you've ever read, yeah. Um, oh. Uh, uh, fiction book, uh, London by Edward Rutherford. Okay. Um, so like into history. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd say psych mainstream psychology book, 
I'm, I'm just obsessed at the moment by a guy called Dan McAdams, who is a personality scientist. Right. And if you want to get out of the grip that resilience, grit, and mindset has has on the coaching community at the moment, start learning about personality science because there's strong evidence to suggest that resilience, grit, and mindset is just high conscientiousness, which is one of our dispositional traits. So anything by Dan mm. McAdams. And in terms of best sports psychology book, um, even, though I even though I disagree with some of his stuff, Dr. Bob Rotella, what a man. Bob. Bob. Dr. Bob Rotella. 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 So really predominantly just written golf books, but golf is not a game of perfect. In 1995, he wrote... Um, very first first sports psychologist to really bring to life sports psychology first sports psychologist to really not write about theory in his books and just got permission from clients possibly right. naughtily so to write uh, about their, their stories oh, wow. so okay. thoroughly recommend oh, yeah that. that's great and last of all mate, when you're not you know helping a Premier League player to um, become become better or you're not working with a, a manager or, or yep. what does Dan do when he's um, puts his book down and that's, that's all I do obsession no um, oh whatever I I love uh, I'm a bit of a foodie now because my wife's a foodie so she yeah, yeah. yeah so we, we, we go to a few foodie destinations I love reading I love um, um, uh, movies uh, and uh, I suppose like anybody else, and a nice drink, just, just, uh, yeah, bottle, red, bo bottle of red wine, um, certainly not teetotal, and trying to work out these days. So, mm, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure. You've been, um, you've given us information to to die for there, mate. So, um, can't thank you enough. But um, thanks ever so much, mate. And, no worries. Um, I'm really grateful. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers. Cheers.